Welcome back to another episode of our mini-series on the opioid epidemic brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns, and I'm a behavioral health specialist at the IFF. In this episode, we're going to hear about the emotional toll of responding to increased opioid overdoses. We'll also cover the impact of peer support and hear one member's experiences managing chronic pain without opioids. I'd like to introduce Bill Cruz, president of Garland Firefighters Association, Local 1293, and a trustee of the Texas State Association of Firefighters. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So, Bill, with this opioid epidemic, what are you seeing in terms of how it's affecting your members? Well, I mean, it's frustrating for them. Uh, I mean, you're seeing, you know, they're, they're making runs on people that otherwise would be normally healthy folks. Um, and, and I guess the, the, the words I hear most often is it's a waste. Uh, they're, they're being called out because these people have put themselves in what they perceive as it putting themselves in this situation. They've caused this problem. So now we're having to increase, you know, the amount of work that we're doing, uh, you know, we, the feelings of, you know, well, somebody else in this district may really need us and, and we're tied up with this person that has caused this problem. Uh, so, it's, you know, a lot of frustration, um, there's anger, uh, you know, and just kind of a myriad of feelings depending on who you talk to, but, but most of all, it's just a lot of frustration. Right. So it sounds like members might not fully understand what addiction is and how it affects people and that it's, it's not an, a failing of that individual, um, you know, that there are a lot of factors that can lead somebody to addiction. Oh, certainly. Yeah. There's a huge misunderstanding um, they're trying to drop some of these people into the same capacity of, of, of you know, the, the recreational drug users not realizing that the, that's a majority of these people got started down this path with a legitimate reason to be taking the opioids um, and, and why the, whether their doctors didn't explain fully to them or they just didn't understand the addictive qualities of, of opioids. Now they're in this situation. Um, and, and if you have you know, paramedics out there that have never been addicted to anything, um, they don't understand the addiction process. Um, they don't understand that it's not just something that these folks can just sit down and walk away from. Um, so with a lack of understanding, uh, and for some with a, just a, a refusal to understand, um, they have that frustration. So tell me more about the emotional toll. You know, what's it like for your members to respond to the same addresses over and over again? Uh, be interacting and, you know, administrating uh, Narcan or Naloxone to the same people over and over again? It, because the lack of understanding, um, they, they, they're frustrated, they're angry, they, they feel that their time is being wasted, they feel that, that what the, this is not what they signed up for, um, you know, going out to these people multiple times that they just keep making the same mistake, um, you know, it's really kind of hard to put you know uh, uh, words to 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 the feelings that are there, especially because there's a myriad of them. You know, it, it, a lot of it is based on you know their background, um, their experiences through life. Uh, you know, especially if they had you know addiction. You know, were family members, um, if they've been touched by it personally. You know, to those that have absolutely no clue about it. 
Um, you because know, for some it, it is, you know, a sadness because they see folks traveling down the path of their family members. Others, it's just anger because they had to get up, um, and, and off they are to, to take care of the same problem. And if they would just stop, we wouldn't have to come out here again. So Bill, it sounds like one of the things that's going on here is compassion fatigue. Um, does that sound right? Oh, I think that's, that's a perfect, uh, you know, description of what it is. Uh, you know, everybody has that ability on that, that first run to uh, that first time to have compassion for somebody. But when, you know, when they have a perception that this is something they can walk away from, this is something they can stop. Uh, but yet they keep doing it yet. They keep getting in this situation. You just, your compassion wears out. I mean, it, you just, the inability to have that compassion for many more for, and for some, it takes less time for that to happen it, it, the second call they've got that fatigue for some it's on down the road uh you know several calls or or you know month, weeks or months but I, I think we all get to that point sometime yeah i think it's really important that we normalize it that we don't want anyone to get compassion fatigue but it's important that in the fire service we're able to recognize the the signs the symptoms and, and know what to do if somebody's gotten to that point both so they can continue to provide a solid service to the citizens, but also to take care of themselves. Oh, yeah. And if any of us think that we're immune to compassion fatigue, we're we're making a mistake. Anybody can get to to that point, uh, whether it be with one person or just the type of call, like as we were talking about with opioids, we're all subject to to getting to the compassion fatigue Uh, because it's not necessarily just what's happening at the fire station. You add to that the media and, and social media, all of those things talking about this crisis all day long. You know, we've got a little break from it right now because of COVID-19. But, you know, before this, the, everywhere, everywhere you turn around, it's the opioid crisis. And some people blame it this way, some people this way. And it just adds up and it builds up whether you realize it or recognize it. And, and you're going to find yourself in that position where you're just tired of it. Mm-hmm. What does compassion fatigue look like? You know, how would somebody know if they're experiencing it or uh, what should our members be looking for in one another? Well, you know, that's the great thing about firefighting. For the most part, this has been a dream job for a lot of us. Uh, I don't know about everybody else, but for me, my dream to be a firefighter started before I was when I was four or five years old. And it's all I dreamed about. from the very beginning. Uh, and there was a point in my career, uh, about 10 years ago that I got to the point that I didn't want to get up and go to work. Uh, and before that alarm clock goes off at 4 AM, I'm excited. I'm getting up, I'm going to the fire station to work. And it was a big clue to my family and those around me that knew me when Bill is dreading to go to work, when he's not excited to be at the fire station, there's a problem. And, And I think that's one of the biggest clues is for me, is that when I don't want to be here, I need to be examining why I don't want to be here. What what has happened that has taken the joy of this job that I love, that I've dedicated my life to, um, what, what's caused that? Um, there's something going on there. You know, you, you referenced your, your own compassion fatigue at various points. When you get to that point when you don't want to be at work and it's it's all just a little bit too much, what do you do? Well, you know, I think for everybody, that's a different answer. 
But the main thing you have to do is sit down and have an honest look as to why you're in that position. Um, and, and that may require talking to somebody, whether that be a peer supporter to help, you know, venture down those roads, uh, or seeking out, you know, um, professional help that they can help you to, uh, work through all of those things to help open up some of those closed doors, um, and, and talk about those things to, to get them out there in the open, uh, so that you can begin the process of, of taking care of those things. Mm-hmm. And what about the role of peer support? You know, I, I can't say enough good things about peer support. We as firefighters are a closed off group. Um, number one, not everybody can understand us. Uh, we, we do things differently. Not many people live a third of their life with a group of, uh, of professionals that do the same thing. Uh, and do the job that we do, and then still have our families at home. And to have somebody that you can sit down with, that you can get right into the process of talking without having to explain, you know, just even the, the, the simple things of, you know, this is why we have three refrigerators. This is this. This is, you know, well, I said this and this, that, what I mean. They already speak the same language because they are in the same field. They do the same thing. They've had the same dreams. They work the same jobs and they already have an understanding. Um, and they can also, you know, see through some of those, those curtains that we put up, um, those smoke screens that we throw out there to cover up the, what we perceive as weaknesses so that we, you know, can maintain that strong firefighter position and, and look to those around us. They, they can see through those things and, and help us and, and call us on those things and, and really help us to zero in and, and figure out what, what's going on. So I know uh, Garland Local 1293 has a peer support team. What impact has that had on your members? You know, we could not have imagined um, the impact it was going to have. Uh, it's been four, four or five years ago that we sent our first members to the peer support training uh, and began setting up our team. And within the first six months, we had had uh, six people reach out that were thinking about suicide and one that had made a plan for it. And these were people that nobody had a, in an inkling that, that they were in that position. And through the peer support program that they were willing to reach out, they were suffering in silence. But once we put those folks out there, a brothers or sisters, they were willing to reach out at that point. And those folks are all still on the job. Um, some of them, you know, are still receiving treatment. Some have, have been through treatment and done well. And, and we've actually been able to address a myriad of things through that time now, uh, not only from, from, you know, suicide, uh, ideation, but, uh, you know, substance, uh, you know, just a myriad of different issues out there that would have normally, you know, taken a firefighter uh, out of out of his role that he's dedicated to. And Bill, what haven't I asked you about so far uh, about the opioid epidemic, the toll on the membership, um, you know, the re- behavioral health resources that are out there? What haven't I asked about that you think is important to share? Well, I, I think one thing that is important is is that. Education is the key. Uh, you know, when it comes to treating these folks, compassion is, is one of the greatest things that we can give them. Uh, 
because every for a lot of folks when it comes to addiction, whether it be opioids or other things, they become very used to people looking down at them, people scolding them for what they're doing, people that don't want to have anything to do with them, doors being slammed in their face. And now the person that they, you know, the last person that they're reaching out to, to help them in a, in, in a time of need, here we are with a scowl on our face and shaking our finger at them and, 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 and being, you know, ugly about things. When a little bit of compassion may be what they need, and that would be the, the key that causes them to take the step in the direction that they need to, to, to break the addiction. Like we talked about earlier, some of these folks started down a very legitimate path. And, and myself, you know, I, I'm a pain management uh, patient. Luckily, my doctor, you know, and I've, I've never had to, to be on opioids and don't, you know, have never traveled on that path. But for, for, so for folks that, you know, that have to have pain management, it's very real. Being in that, it allows them to, to, to actually have a semblance of life when, you know, without it, you know, they'd be confined to home. They, they wouldn't even want to get up in the morning. Um, you know, their psyche is being attacked by that. But through pain management, they, they can do these things. And, and unfortunately, you know, the physicians saw the opioids as, as this great thing that can give you know, these people back their life. And unfortunately, it was not the best thing out there. And now here they are. Um, and like I said, they, they started down this path very legitimately, seeking help for a problem that they had. And before they knew it, it had a control of their life. Um, and it's not just something you can put down and walk away from. And then and, and with it comes shame, with it comes guilt. And we all know that that closes doors and we close ourselves off from that. And if we can be that compassionate person, if we can be that person with that kind face, with that good word that, that there is a way out of this, let us, you know, show you and let's, let's get you some help. Let's take you down to the hospital. Let's, you know, talk to the social worker. Let's, let's talk to the mental health professionals and let's see if we can't get you some help and, and get your life back to you. Bill, you mentioned that you're a pain management patient. Um, is that related to your work in the fire service or is that from something else? Uh, actually, it, some of it is. Um, I, I contracted Lyme's disease um, in the early 2000s, uh, which left me with a, with a neurological tick and um, a certain level of pain that depending uh, on the day. Um, but couple that with the arthritis and the, and all the joints from, from doing the job, um, it, it makes it tough some days. So Bill, you mentioned that you get treatment for pain, but that you've never been on opioids for that pain. That's somewhat rare these days, uh, because of how widespread opioids are. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, and it's not that the doctor didn't want to, to, to give me opioids, um, uh, but I asked not to, not to use them uh, because I had some understanding of the addiction possibilities of that. Um, and with my job and, and with everything else, I, I tried not to go down that path. And, 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 and so far, it's been successful. You know, some of it was just a recognition and, and awareness of, of the drugs and, and just asking not to, not to use those. What was that conversation like with your physician when you said, you know, I, I need some help with this pain, but, but I don't want to be on these, these types of medications? Well, the biggest part of the conversation was, is in, first and foremost, I'm a firefighter um, and, and I need something that I can take 
uh, you know, before duty, while I'm on duty, um, that's not going to uh, inhibit my, my senses or, you know, cause me a problem uh, doing the job. But also, you know, I want to be careful that, you know, I'm not, you know, subjecting myself to something that could be addictive down the road. Um, and, and luckily, I've got a very, a very good, you know, pain management doctor who's who's very aware about uh, of addiction uh, possibilities of different medication, and and, and it's something that uh, they look at uh, very closely and, and discuss uh, quite openly with patients. So, in this podcast series, we've spoken with Dr. Gonzalez Cota, who's a pain management physician who consults with the IFF Center of Excellence, um, really on the issues that you're talking about, how to manage pain that our members may be experiencing because of issues on the job or off the job and how to do so safely with with minimal or no use of opioids. And we've heard his advice for, you know, how patients should have conversations with their doctors around this issue. Um, What's your advice, you know, for members out there who are in a lot of pain, uh, you know, back, knees, shoulders, you know, other kinds of injuries or surgeries? Um, what would you say to them about, you know, having these discussions with their physicians? Well, you know, number one is just, you know, address that, but, you know, be open-minded enough to look outside just medicinal treatment. Um, you know, so many things can be treated with physical therapy, with stretching. Very lucky, my mother-in-law is a chiropractor. Um, so, you know, with using uh, acupuncture and massage and adjustments and, and some some different herbal treatments that are out there. Um, you know, on those bad days, I'm able to keep those things managed, but also just know that, you know, there are going to be those bad days and be prepared to, to take that day off if you need to. The thought sometimes is, is that, you know, we, we want to eliminate all of it. Well, there are just going to be those days that it's going to be there. It's just part of life, but we can, you know, manage it, uh, and keep it, man- you know, at a manageable level, you know, so, but it's, you know, it's one of those things that, you just have to have that, you know, that discussion is, you know, I, I don't want to be in a position where I become addicted to something. Uh, you know, what can we use to, to keep that from happening? Uh, what are my options that are out there? You know, what, what are some different treatments that you know of, you know, pain stimulator, you know, the stem units that they can to put in, you know, even external TENS units, you know, there's a, a myriad of options and some of it, you know, pain management, but, you know, they have those, they know about them and they can, can give those things. And, and, you know, like we've got the internet too, and you can reach out to those things, but don't forget, I mean, we've got, you know, in the IFF 330,000 members, um, and we're connected one way or the other, reach out, but what are other people doing? What's worked for you? You know, give it, give that a try and be patient. Um, because not everything's going to work for you that works for somebody else. And it may be a, a long road, um, to finding what works, but don't quit. Just just keep going. Keep venturing down those roads because um, there there's something out there that's going to work for you. It's just going to take some time and patience to find it. That's great advice, Bill. I want to thank you for being here for sharing your experiences with with all of our members on the podcast and for the work you do every day. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number UH4ES009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.